you remember, in the book of Hebrews, uh, we don't want to suffer from gospel FOMO, the fear of missing out, uh, because we don't want to miss out on the gospel. The good news of Jesus, the author is writing to predominantly a Jewish audience, and so the things they're wrestling with, we may not be able to identify because he's writing to a first century group of people that are coming out of Judaism, but the applications can be made into our own hearts and our own life, of course. We come together according to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. We gather, just like the first century church did, in order to what? To stir one another up for love and good works. And so you remember that sometimes I have a stick, and that word to stir up is the idea of sort of to prod, okay? But now, we prod each other along, so I can come out here, and um, I can sort of playfully t- ask Sid, hey, Sid, did you have a good week? Did, did, were you about love and good works? And he says, yes. And then um, Sid only needs, he needs a little prodding. But I know my friend Chris, he may need a little bit more than that. So I might poke him a little bit. And I'm like, hey, Chris, you doing okay, brother? And he'll say, well, kind. I said, well, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you in the nature of salvation. I mean, God's got this. You don't have to be discouraged carry on. I know ministry is hard. I, I mean, I know you got all these kids, and um, I, they're always obedient, but uh, it's, it's hard, right? But that's why we come together and gather together, and you might remember that, that Pat, um, he left us with uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, is, is sort of what he would feel like is sort of the thing that he holds on to when the author says, let us then, based on who Christ is, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Reformation Sunday, and it was all about grace and faith and the person of Christ and Scripture for God's glory. And it's only through the person of Christ that we can know grace. And regardless of what's going on in your life today, I mean, the wheels might have literally come off the bus. I think that Jeff actually literally got a flat tire on the way to church today. Regardless of that, we know that there is great grace, not because of what we do, not because of our great vision, but because of who Christ is. And we are recipients of the gospel, and we don't want to miss out on that. Alistair Begg said this, The good news, or the gospel, is not a message of do your best and be good enough. Hear this. It's not a message of do your best and be good enough, but rather, what? Your best is never enough, but Jesus is. Man, no matter how old you are, young or old, just allow that to minister to your heart. My best is never good enough. I'm never going to measure up. I don't need to beat myself up when I fail, and I can never think too much of myself. Why? Because Jesus is the only one that is enough. Hebrews chapter 6, if you're not there already, you can turn there. The title of the message is, Leave and Press On. 
leave and press on. There's going to be an exhortation, a word of encouragement, and a warning in the text. You'll be able to hear that, and this is really a continuation of what Pat left us with this last week, uh, Hebrews chapter 6. I'll be just taking the first eight verses, okay? So you can follow along up here. You just listen. Verse 1 says, Therefore, that's always therefore, based on what was previously said, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the ages to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Verse 8, But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be, what? Burned. Now, you might not have come here today and realized that this is perhaps one of the most controversial passages in the entire New Testament. I don't think it needs to be, uh, so I want to make it plain and simple. Uh, you've heard me say this again often. Uh, context is, what? King. Okay, so we interpret the Word of God based on the historical, grammatical, literal approach to what the Word of God says is what it means. And we look at the genres of how it's written. This is a letter. It's written to an audience, predominantly Jewish folks. They come in and out of Judaism. Now think about this. It's one of the early epistles. Most of them were probably alive when Jesus walked on earth. Some of them might have actually come into contact with Jesus. There's a very, very good chance that many of them were actually in Jerusalem at Pentecost when the church was born. So they had seen and experienced a lot. All right? So the author is writing to them, and he's giving them an exhortation. If you want to think about that stick, it's not so much what I would do with, with Sid. An exhortation is more like I would do with Chris. It's, 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 a, it's a pretty firm, like, hey, brother, okay? I'm kind of giving him a whack on the shoulder, all right? That's an exhortation, okay? It's a strong word of truth. And there's going to be a word of encouragement, okay, in the middle of this. And then there's going to be a warning, um, now, I don't know if the stick is appropriate, and um, I, I'm sure that none of you need, okay? But this is like a beating, all right? This is, this is to, to, hey, get your attention. Hey, listen to this. This is really, really important. It was important for those that the author of Hebrews was writing to, and it's important for us. It's important for us. Now, I know that some of you you were sitting here thinking, I wonder if he's going to use an illustration from Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you were thinking that? That's right, okay? And I'm, I don't want to let you down because Hebrews 6 
it's all over Pilgrim's Progress, okay? So I'm just going to, I'm going to restrain myself. I'm going to give you one short illustration. Is that okay? All right, so you remember, written by who? Bunyan. What was his first name? John, thank you. I feel, ah, I'm validated, all right? So John Bunyan, writing from prison because he wouldn't stop preaching, he writes this allegorical story, okay? If you don't know what an allegory is, talk to Miss Reagan back there. She will tell you, all right? If you're one of her students, don't admit that you don't know what an allegory is, all right? So he writes this allegory from prison, and it's a story about Christian, and it's his, it's his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, right? So he's on this path, and, and if you remember the story, he has this burden on his back. It's his sin. He gets to the wicked gate. He goes through the wicked gate, and he gets saved. I mean, radically saved. And this burden falls off, and then he begins this journey, and in the journey, he runs into all kinds of people and all kinds of things and situations. Early on in his journey, he comes to this place called the interpreter's house. I like the interpreter's house. Go, go look it up, okay? All right? There's a lot of rooms in the interpreter's house, okay? He walks in, and the first room he sees, which I really, really like, is this, is this fire. And it's a fire that won't go out. And there's someone, the interpreter, who's sort of leading him on a tour of his house. And Christian says, hey, what's with the fire? And interpreter says, oh, that fire was set by the person of Christ himself. And he goes behind sort of the, 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 the earth, you know, he goes behind the fire and he looks and sure enough, there's someone there stoking that fire. And interpreter says, that's the Holy Spirit. And that fire will never go out. Christian's like, wow, that's amazing. That's encouraging. So then he keeps going through this house and he comes into this one room and the whole the whole story changes. It gets dark, and it's cold. And what, what does interpreter do? He leads Christian into this room, and in the corner of this dark room is this iron cage. And lo and behold, as he goes into the room, and his eyes adjust, he looks closely. What's in the cage? There's a man. And Christian says to interpreter, why is the man in that iron cage? Now, up until this point, interpreter has told Christian what's going on in each room. And so, at this point, it changes a little bit, and Bunyan, through the interpreter, says, why don't you go ask the man in the iron cage? So, Christian goes over to the cage, and he says, hey, who are you? And the man looks up and says, what I was, I am no more. And Christian says, well, that's, that's funny. That's tragic. What were you? And he said, previously, I was a follower of the way. I was a proclaimer of the truth. And Christian says to the man in the iron cage, well, what happened to you? And he slouched down and said, I was given over to my lust, my sin, and Christian says, well, is there no hope for you? And the man in the iron cage says, there is no hope. Christian looks at interpreter at this point and says, what do you mean there's no hope for the man in the iron cage? And interpreter looks at him and he says, 
Never forget this scene. Let it go with you on your journey to the celestial city. Most authorities on Pilgrim's Progress agree that this was, in Bunyan's mind, Hebrews chapter 6 lived out in the allegory. Now, I tell you the story for two reasons. One, I find it super interesting, okay? Secondly, is that Bunyan, through his characters, Christian, the interpreter, and the man in the iron cage, they never explain and they never bring any closure to this scene. It just is what it is. In the same way, don't get carried away about what may or may not be extrapolated from Hebrews chapter 6. Because you may read it and you may say, now wait a minute, is it possible for, for someone to lose their salvation? Who is he talking about here? Well, we'll address those things, but allow the weight of the truth and the reality of what the author is communicating to those that he's writing to, to just rest on your heart. Let it, let it go with you in your journey to the celestial city. We're looking forward, just as we just sang, towards heaven, okay? But on that journey, we're all faced with all kinds of situations, some pretty awesome and sometimes pretty difficult. Some of us today, we may feel like the man in the iron cage or perhaps the person who's going to be put into the cage because we are wrestling with our sinfulness. Let the sobering warning that's there just rest on your soul. It's not hopeless, but it's reality. Matthew chapter 7, okay, if you want a big theological sort of hook to, to hang here, listen to this. Jesus says, this is again in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, this is Jesus speaking, I never, what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, wait a minute. They cast demons out. They prophesied. They, 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 they foretold the future. They even produced miracles. And Jesus says, I didn't know you. So, when we consider what the author is trying to communicate, that this leave and press on and how we apply the Word of God to our lives, it becomes crucial that we allow God's Word to evaluate the state of our hearts, not based on what other people say, not based on how fruitful we think we are, but based on who we are in Christ. John MacArthur says, unlike a knife, truth becomes sharper with use, which for truth comes by acceptance and obedience. A truth that is heard but not accepted becomes dull and meaningless. The more we neglect it, the more immune to it we become. That might sound familiar because last week Pat took us through Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11, which says, about this we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become what? Dull of hearing. That's why when we think about Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, 
we apply the Word of God because it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We come to Christ, okay? So Christ makes this warning in Matthew 7, but when we come to Christ, we find our rest, not in our accomplishments, not in our talents, not in what we do, but in Christ himself. That's why he said in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So three, three points, okay? Any good preacher tries to get three points. Actually, you don't need it, okay? This is super simple. The exhortation, number one, don't lay a found, bad foundation, verses one and two. Here's the encouragement in verse three, rest in the providence of God. Thirdly, verses four through six, beware of falling away. Here's that warning. Take it for what it is. And then an application, marks of maturity and immaturity. One of the first verses that I learned, um, uh, I participated in a children's program called Awana growing up. It was a uh, uh, great opportunity to learn Bible verses, was Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be, what? Saved. Okay? Um, so again... You're saying, yeah, that doesn't sound too radical. It is absolutely radical for the audience that the author is writing to because their hope, their religious orientation was not based in the Messiah, in the person of Christ. Where was their hope rooted? In the Old Testament, okay? In the sacrificial system, in the priesthood, in obeying the law, Okay, you're going to hear that come up. What's the law? Well, technically it's the Pentateuch, okay, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But it was not only that, it was the way that uh, the, the, the religious leaders interpreted the law. It's the rules that they put on top of the law. And so how good of a Jew you were and you're standing before God, your faith in God depended on how well you obeyed. So when you look at Acts 4.12, this was a complete paradigm shift, so the author is saying, hey, I'm, I'm warning you, don't fall away. The Greek word there has the idea of just not slipping off of something. It's actually running away. Don't fall away from the truth of who Christ is. Don't lay a bad foundation, okay? Uh, who's he talking to? Um, I think he's talking to both Christ followers and those who think they are in Christ. Talking about repenting from dead works, faith towards God, washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, even eternal judgment. Those are all in verses 1 and 2. You're saying, well, <laughs> what are those all about? Well, you could go back and, and you could take them apart, but these were all associated with, with Judaism. This wasn't Christian baptism, for instance, in verse 2. This wasn't the, the, some of the older versions actually translated uh, baptized. This is washings. When you walked into a Jewish home, what you saw was a, was a bowl or a basin, and they would ceremonially wash not only before they were about to eat, but before they were able to do anything. And you weren't a good Jew 
or follower of God unless you practiced ceremonial cleansing. The laying on of hands isn't about the elders in the book of James. This is, this is about when they would go to the priest and when you were about to give the sacrifice to the priest, the priest would take your hand and lay it on the sacrifice. That comes right out of Leviticus 17. And you were taking your sin and putting your sin onto the sacrifice, and then the priest could absolve you of your sinfulness. That's the only way that you would be made right. So the author is saying, therefore, let us what? Leave. Flee. Break off from the elementary doctrines of Christ of how you understood the Messiah in the Old Testament. This is what you need to hear here, okay? The Old Testament is true, all 39 books. It's absolutely true. It is of God. It is a necessary part of God's revelation to us and of His plan of salvation for man, but it is only a partial revelation. It is not sufficient. Jesus completes the Old Testament in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, Later on in the book of Hebrews, when we read the Hall of Faith, we find that, that these great men and women, they were looking forward to something that they didn't get to see, and that was the person of Jesus. As New Testament followers of Christ that the author is writing to here, he's saying, hey, don't fall back into a religious system that will dead end you. You're not going to grow to maturity you're not going to grow into the things that God the Father wants in, of you unless you lay hold of the person of Christ. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 4, 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In John 14, 6, which is familiar to us, no one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 20, 21, even as the New Testament church is born, it says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it wasn't the first century churchgoers who were prone to replace Christ with a religious system. All throughout church history, we find that happening. That was where we find the need for the Reformation. The church became the focal point of faith in the medieval church. And the reformers said, no, we don't trust in the church. We don't trust in the priesthood. We trust only in the person of Christ and faith in Him. It's not faith in our faith. It's not faith in our faithfulness. No missionary would ever do that, right? You ever find yourself feeling good about your faithfulness? I got news for all of us. Our salvation is not based on our faithfulness. I'm glad you're faithful to your job. I'm glad you're faithful to your schoolwork. But when you stand before God the Father and you're judged, the only thing that's going to matter is whether or not, as we sang, whether or not we have the merit of Christ. Theologians say the imputed righteousness of Christ because it's only in faith in Jesus that we know salvation. The author is saying to these folks, hey, I understand the, the, the religious system. 
Don't rest there. It's a dead end. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Calvin used to talk about his institutes that uh, the law had a threefold purpose. One was to show us our sin. One was to act as a mirror so that we would look and see our sin. And finally, to point us to Christ. That's the only good that the law is. We're really good as human beings at making rules, okay? Now, rules are necessary for community living, and you go to school, and you've got a rule, and maybe they tell you you've got to wear certain clothes um, in your home. I'm sure you've got rules, but let me tell you, those rules have nothing to do with your heart condition before God, except for the fact that as you obey them in Christ, you honor Him, but they are not connected to your salvation. James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of what? Of sin. Edward Calamy said, By the law we see our misery, and by the gospel we see our remedy. Don't lay about in foundation. That's what the author is saying. The foundation of the Old Testament system, okay? Whether those be washings, ceremonial law, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead. They even had a full eschatological system in the Old Testament of what, the, what they believed about what would happen after death. Even judgment. It's not going to help. It's only found in the person of Christ. We not only look and see that we can't lay a bad, bad foundation, but the encouragement is this. We can rest in the providence of God. Look at verse 3. And this we will do. We will move on. We'll leave the elementary principles or doctrines of Christ in the Old Testament. This we will do if God permits. <laughs> Commentators go round and round about why this verse is there. I think it's just a word of encouragement to them. The author is saying, hey, God's got this. He's in charge of it anyway. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws me, sent me, draws him. Nobody comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. James 4, 15, okay, this is the practical application. This is, this is a side note. James says, instead, okay, of saying I'm going to do this or that, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Sometimes we get, we get so uptight about what might happen in the future. Listen, the providence of God simply means that he's not only in control, that's his sovereignty, but his providence says he wills and determines things. Not just some things, everything. Now, my small-mindedness has a hard time getting its mind around that, but I, I embrace it. I let the weight of that just settle. Because sometimes his providence is easy. Sometimes his providence, my circumstances, are hard. How many nights do we lay awake thinking, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if I'm going to get into that school. I don't know if what, I'm going to get on that, the grade of that 
I'm not, the test that I'm taking tomorrow, I don't know how I'm going to do. I don't know if I'm going to get that job. <laughs> I don't know if I should do this or do that. Hey, listen, God's got it. Rest in that. If we can rest in him for our salvation, surely we can rest in him for the relatively minor things in life, right? I came across this this week, and I, it was an encouragement to me. John Flavel, uh, one of my favorite old dead guys, uh, said some providences, like Hebrew letters, must be read backwards. Now, if you don't understand Hebrew works, Hebrews doesn't go left to right. It goes right to left when you read it, and so if you read it backwards, it, it makes sense. And so sometimes in life, he's simply saying that as we look backwards, we see God's hand. Have you ever seen that? Like you don't understand why something happened, and then all of a sudden, somewhere down the road, you go, oh, I see, I see it now. Oh, look at that. Isn't that awesome? It's really cool. So when he says, and this we will do if God permits, he's simply acknowledging that God's in control of all things. And somewhere in our responsibility and the providence of God and his control, it comes together perfectly. And I don't need to wrestle with whether my responsibility to respond to the pages of Scripture outweighs his providence. I know that I yield to that, and I can rest in that. So there's the encouragement. So there was this exhortation, then there was this encouragement, here comes the warning, okay? Beware of falling away. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the ages to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to content. Here's the man in the iron cage. He's, he's captured. And Christian says, is there anything that can be done for you? And he says, no, there's not. Hebrews 3 verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you who has an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living gods. This is a theme that we're going to see again in the book of Hebrews. The author is saying that you've come into contact with the gospel. You've seen Jesus. Some of them had probably met him in his earthly life. They'd seen what had taken place at the birth of the church in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Seeds of the gospel had been planted in their life, but they were like those where seeds had been planted on rocky places, where it seems like there had been some sort of birth, but in reality there was nothing Hebrews 10.29 says, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So the author is describing someone who's been enlightened. He's tasted of this heavenly gift. He understands what salvation is. He knows who Jesus is. He's even partaken of the Holy Spirit. There's much debate there. 
okay? Someone say, well, who, who act exactly is he speaking of? I think it's, it's really simple, because if you look back, uh, as he talks in verse 4, he says, for it is impossible in the case of what? Those. So if you go back to verse 1, he says, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, okay? So he's spurring in verse 1 those who believe they're in Christ on. Verse 4, he says, and then there are those. He's speaking hypothetically. Is he speaking about a group of people that he's thinking of? We don't know. But he's saying those people who've been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, partaken of the Holy Spirit, tasted of the powers of the age to come, and tasted of God's word, if they fall away, and there's a big problem. First Timothy 4.1 says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. William Grinnell, um, another good old dead guy, said, None sink so far into hell as those that come nearest heaven because they fall from the greatest height. For most of us, this is probably, it's a hard warning to swallow. But again, like the picture that Bunyan paints of the man in the iron cage, it's a good one that the Holy Spirit, I think, would say to all of us, take that picture with you on your journey to the celestial city, both for your own benefit but also to those around you. Because again, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, we want to encourage one another and even give warning when necessary. The application is, is super simple, okay? Marks of maturity and immaturity, verses 7 and 8. Land that is drunk, the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. So if you, get, if you get gospel rain, then you produce fruit. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near, there's hope there, near to being cursed, and its end, if they stay there, is to be burned. Okay? John 15, 5, Jesus says something similar. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we're in Christ, then we will bear fruit. Again, it's not outward fruit. Um, This is the reality of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no what? No law. Now, most of us here uh, have been called to gospel ministry, and so um, the assumption is, is that we are genuine followers of Christ. I have, I have no doubt, doubt that, okay, but this sobering reality is what it is, um, and it's good for us to examine our life, and are we mature, are we bearing fruit, or are we immature, are we not bearing fruit? Spurgeon said this, it is of no use for any of you to try to be soul winners or missionaries, okay, I'm, I'm interpreting, I'm, 
uh, adding to Spurgeon, if you are not bearing fruit in your own lives, how can you serve the Lord with your lips if you do not serve Him with your lives? How can you preach His gospel with your tongues when with hands, feet, and heart you are preaching the devil's gospel and setting up an antichrist by your practical unholiness? So, what does that mean for us? So there is great hope because later on, you got to read the entire Pilgrim's Progress, okay? Later on, uh, Christian finds himself imprisoned, not in an iron cage, but in a dungeon. Do you remember that? And he gets super discouraged. It's the dungeon of despair. And at that time, he has a, he has a companion, and he remembers something that his companion said. His companion said, never lose what? Hope. Christian reaches in to his jacket and he pulls out the word of God. That's our hope. That's our hope. So, if you're a full-time vocational worker, teacher, student, uh, whatever you're doing, uh, this applies to us. Our hope, okay, is not in our circumstances. It's it's not in how much visible things we do, okay? Those are, those are good. We celebrate them. We celebrate victories in life. But at the end of the day, it's who we are in Christ. And even when we find ourselves in temptation or even given over to sin, the hope that we have is real hope. It's real hope. And it's found here. That's why we say go, go here every day. This is where you start or finish or go in between. And I hope that you practice to be intentional about reading His Word. Because just like MacArthur said, God's Word, it doesn't get dull with use. It gets sharper. And it penetrates our heart. Now, the worship team's going to come and lead us in the last song. Uh, I want to leave you with this. If there are things that we can pray with one another about, um, please don't hesitate to ever reach out. Um, there's a uh, there's a web address or an email that you can send, or you can just shoot me a note or Floyd a note or John a note. Um, you may not know this, but there's a group of men, uh, elders of the church, that we come together. We're, we're together yesterday, and we pray for each person in this room by name. And if you have a request, we pray for that request. Okay? And that's one of the ways that we minister to one another. And that's why we come together, not just to worship and not just to hear the word, but to minister each and every day. And if there's a situation that comes up that you just don't know what to do with, don't be hesitate to say, hey, I need help. I need encouragement. I'm, I'm on this journey like Christian, but I need a hopeful that, that can point me in the right direction.